you know, I sat across the table with my nine-year-old and said, like, I got this job and it's in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Neither one of us have ever been there and we don't know anyone. What do you think about this? And she was just like, mom, if it's your dream, like, let's do it. Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. If you haven't already, please give Cognitive Revolution a follow on whichever platform you may be listening through. It helps especially on iTunes and Apple Music. Uh, I'd, I'd appreciate any review as it helps grow the show. You can also keep up with every new episode by signing up for my weekly newsletter. Each week, I send out a couple links to the most fascinating things that I found on the internet that week, as well as anything coming from my own desk, such as the latest episode of Cognitive Revolution. You can join the literally tens of people who are that fascinated with what I'm up to, including my mother. So my guest today, uh, I'm a bit hesitant to share this interview with the rest of you. Because after spending an hour or so talking to her, I'm considering appointing her to be my best friend of all time. And if I share this interview, I'm worried that too many other people will have the same inclination and I'll be outcompeted. Uh, she is a true BFD, a big freaking deal. Uh, she has a book coming out, which we didn't talk about because her publisher took me into a dark alley and told me not to ask her about it. And she has done some amazing scientific work on the neuroscience of individual differences. But we didn't get into that either. Uh, The main reason for that is because the story of who she is is just so damn fascinating that we really didn't have time for anything else. She is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Washington. I am incredibly excited to introduce Chantal Brown. So my guest today uh, has a really fascinating story, which I'm, which I'm really excited to get into. Uh, her name is Chantal Pratt, uh, and she's a professor of psychology and uh, a bunch of related fields at UW, University of Washington, in my hometown of Seattle. Uh, so Chantal, uh, I'll be giving you, you know, your fuller introduction uh, to start the episode, but uh, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to have you. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, am I, am I saying your name right? Chantel Pratt? Yeah, you said my name perfectly, which was the first thing that shocked me. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't make me introduce myself because even when I do it, sometimes I'm like, that's not quite right either. Yeah, sure. You did great. Perfect. I'll just have you introduce me from now on. Excellent. Uh, so, you know, I was, uh, I was reading on your website and uh, it sounds like you have something pretty cool and unique in common with Metallica. Which isn't, isn't necessarily something every neuroscientist can say. Uh, so what's the, what's the story there? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's funny. Well, for my 40th birthday, my husband um, did what he does best, and that is throw me off guard with some kind of a wacky surprise. And um, this time, what he did was actually arrange for me to get a tattoo from Corey Miller, who has done some of the artwork for the Metallica album covers and has done some tattoos for the band. Um, just to put this in context, the last tattoo I got was when I was 20 
or 21, and um, I had been watching the show LA Inc. with him when we were dating in Pittsburgh and casually made the comment like, whoa, if I ever got another tattoo, I would want it to be a Corey Miller tattoo, this casual conversation. 20 years later, my husband was like, you know what would be awesome present? a Corey Miller tattoo. So um, he worked behind the scenes for six months to arrange this surprise for me. It makes my palms sweat just thinking about it because he sort of, um, you know, said, voila, I've worked, um, discussed with Corey and you're getting a tattoo. And I really, I mean, he does like, I would say a few tattoos a month and I had no idea what my husband had told me, had told him about me. So I instantly sort of got Corey on email and said, hey, I'm like a squidgy middle-aged woman. <laughs> like I am also kind of a badass is what I said. And I want this tattoo of a tiger, tiger lily is my alter ego. <laughs> and I said, I want this tattoo um, to sort of show that. And it was just, um, it was amazing. I I was very, very nervous, but I went in and Corey Miller does all of his art free work. I thought I was gonna get maybe like a two or three inch tattoo on my shoulder. And I sat down in the shop and he started drawing all over my back and my shoulders and basically the entire upper back. And it was just so amazing. And I felt like I have a piece of art on me. Um, I sat there for 13 hours wow. um, because we had traveled to LA to do it. Yeah. And it's definitely a, um, it stands out as I'd say like one of my top 10 uh, most unique life experiences. I mean, we talked the whole time. He talked so much. He was so interested in neuroscience and psychology. And, you know, we were in the um, shop with him till two in the morning. It was it was phenomenal. It was a really, really cool experience. You know, uh, I bet he's done a lot of artists and, uh, you know, musicians, that sort of thing. I bet you're the only neuroscientist he's ever uh, had the pleasure of tattooing. So. That came up a lot. His assistant was like, my dad always comments on what kinds of people get tattoos, but I'm going to tell them about you. Okay, so um, let's see. Why don't, you, why don't you give us a picture of sort of what your, your average day looks like so we have a sense of, of how to compare where you are now to sort of, you know, where you've come from and what, what, what you've done in the past and all that sort of stuff. Oh, man, average day. That's interesting. Well, um, I usually wake up around 5 a.m., which sounds horrible, but I wake up like that naturally. It's not an alarm. I'm just a lark. Um, and sort of the earlier I wake up, the more excited I am because I feel like those quiet hours before anyone wakes up are my, my time. Um, recently, I've spent those early morning hours working on a book um, that is due in January 2021. I also uh, write papers, um, edit student papers, basically things that need the most of my brain I do before sunrise, which I know sounds bizarre. Um, then I come into work. Uh, I usually have two or three meetings with mentees, with my trainees. Um, I teach, I'm currently teaching a um, graduate class on cognitive psychology. I teach, um, my main teaching uh, effort goes into supervising the honors program. So I have about 20 uh, juniors and 20 seniors that I supervise through independent research projects, not in my lab. I just train them, place them, and kind of keep them going. That's, that's um, 
my daily life. I've been doing more administration. I'm the head of the cognition and perception area. Um, I, I try and avoid that. I think managing scientists is like the worst job ever and we should all be very nice to our administrators and our staff um but that i think you kind of have to do more of that as you go on in academia i i've noticed that um the i've sort of i try and be aware of how i spend my time so i think the things kind of sort themselves out into three or four categories one is thinking and sciencing, which is involved in sometimes preparing for class, sometimes writing my book, um, sometimes preparing to meet with students. And then there's mentoring, which I think is a kind of social connection and a science connection. Um, and then there is, I would say, any kind of outreach and communication. I've been doing more of that. Our research was uh, featured in a documentary that I hope will get picked up by distributors soon called I Am Human. Um, and so I've been doing some Q&A, traveling around to film festivals, and I'm gonna be uh, meeting with high school students in Napa soon, which I'm really excited about. And then there's administration, which is basically all of the stuff you need to do to support all of those other things. And I think that winds up taking half of the time. And I sort of think the life hack is getting the administration stuff done by other people or being bad at it so no one asks you to do it um, but that's probably how I spend four to five hours a day yeah that certainly is one uh, way to deal with the admin stuff is to catastrophically fail the first time so much so that you don't get assigned uh, to do any more of that work later on but, uh... it's so true and it's so hard <laughs> so I kind of have to prioritize like if somebody else is depending on me like I don't want to do a good job because all that gets you is more jobs right. that you don't want to do you know, one, but of course yeah one one strategy that I've heard about recently that I really like is instead of being really responsive on email set the precedent of being unresponsive on email so people know that it's gonna they don't expect you to get back right away they well, they realize it'll take a couple days or however long it's gonna be to, uh, to get there. And I think that that's, that's an underutilized strategy in general. I read an article somewhere called, Is Email Making Professors Stupid? And it was about this guy who doesn't use email and he only uses snail mail and he hires a person to sort through the snail mail. And I thought that, if that could yeah. actually be achieved, that would be so brilliant. Because wow. email, like I'll sit and start answering emails right. and I'll have received like 50 more in the process. It's it's crazy. Yeah, and you also want that high barrier of entry for people who are contacting you, right? It's so easy to send someone an email, um, but like in order to get out there, pull out the pen and paper, write the letter, uh, send it, you know, like uh, dust off the stamps, that sort of stuff. Uh, totally. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, one thing I'm interested in, so you're obviously productive um, earlier in the morning than most people. Is there a time where like, you just sort of turn into a pumpkin and you're kind of useless after a certain period of time? Or do you find that uh, just as long as there are other people bothering you, that you can kind of be productive any time of day? Oh, absolutely not. No way. I don't think, and any, I don't think anybody is. Um, I definitely, um, I, I would say like lunchtime dip. And I, I actually brought, I bought a nap roll um, just like it's like I think it's for children it has little stars on it I love it um, but one day I just passed out on my carpet on my um, 
on my jacket and I was like, this feels so great. Um, I just like took like a 15 minute nap. So I bought a nap roll so that I could have a more sanitary way of doing that when I needed it. Um, I think anytime, like if I'm in two or three meetings that require deep thinking, I need a break Mm -hmm. of some kind, whether it be my students and I, um, in the summers, we do walk, walking meetings. Um, and that's just like exercise and sunshine if it exists and sort of gets your brain back, um, going. And then I am completely useless. I would say after 6:30 or 7 PM, I mean, one thing I've realized living in Seattle that I never knew before is how sensitive I am to daylight. My husband calls me a canary and he says like you put a put a blanket over my head and I pass out. But really, once it gets dark, I start getting very sleepy very fast. Um, so, you know, when I talk when I'm talking to students and my honor students about time management, I say it's all very well and good to sort of write something out in a schedule and, and show that you could accomplish all of these things if everything else were equal. But you're a, bio- a biological machine. You're not like an you're not equipotential. Yeah. And so I try and encourage them. And this is what I do to instead of blocking out time um, for like this activity, this activity, this activity, I I try and organize my to-do list according to like how much en- mental energy I think it's going to take. And then when I have the, you know, free time, when I have the, you do have to block out free time. I think like, where am I at right now? Do I need a nap? Do I need a walk? Am I sharp? And if I'm sharp, go to the sharp list. Am I like dull, but I'm awake? Okay. I can do emails or things like that. So, you know, and it's not always the same all the time. Sometimes I sit down and I'm like, this is awesome. I have two hours to work on writing and I'm just, er, you know, it's not coming. (laughs) So then it's like, okay, pivot. And I think just sort of being aware of how you are mentally and physically and sort of what are the demands of the different things you have to do. I think that's the best way we can kind of hack uh, trying to get all the things done that we need to get done. Okay, so I'm interested in getting into your story because I know there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack there. Um, And maybe uh, a place to start would be uh, uh, who was the first person who inspired you to to go on the graduate school track or to get interested in science or who you know you heard and that was like oh wow this is this is what i'm really interested in um was there a person who stands out in your in your history like that yeah i guess depending on the nature of the question the thing the like real pivot for me was so i started out um pre-med i was one of these like you know i graduated from high school when i had just turned 17 I went to an accelerated pre-med program because I watched too much Doogie Howser when I was a kid. And I was 19 years old and I was about to finish all of the requirements I needed to apply to med school. Wow, no way. And I, yeah, I went to this accelerated school in Kansas City for, for a chunk of time. Um, and I needed one social science class and they had like organic chemistry and bio and physics. But I went to a junior college, and I don't remember the teacher's name, but I went to a junior college, and I took an intro psych class. And I remember the woman talking about Phineas Gage. And of course, they talked about it in the sort of pop psychology way. He had a railroad spike driven through his frontal lobe, and his total personality changed. But I just remember very salient, it hit me that your brain is an organ, like your lungs or your liver or anything else, but it makes you you. And I was just like, this 
is actually what I want to study. It was a combination of factors. You know, I was really getting ready to apply to med school and I was saying to myself, I don't even like blood. You know, it's just like I was doing what I thought was a smart kid thing to do. And I was like, I don't like blood. I'm going to be 21 years old and in hundreds of thousands of dollars with debt. No one's going to trust me with their life and they shouldn't. (laughs) And this sort of aha moment where I realized I want to study the brain. And so I came back to UC San Diego and I majored in psychology. And my interest was always, and the reason I measured, uh, majored in psychology and not neuroscience was at the time I asked, and even when applying to grad school, I asked like, what, what's the difference between neuroscience and psychology in terms of studying the brain? And the idea was, you know, people who study neuroscience tend to be interested in brain mechanisms for the sake of brain mechanisms. And they tend to study simpler uh, models like a zebrafish or sea elegans or, you know, mouse models. And I was really interested in how people work. Um, so that sort of, that was the first of a huge pivot in me wanting to understand neuroscience. Do you want to hear the second one? Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. Want me to stop no, there? That's... Okay. Yeah. So that was like, that was a, a huge pivot. And then if, if a person needs a, uh, more life altering, um, that summer when I transitioned from the accelerated pre-med program back to UC San Diego, I got pregnant. And so I was 19 years old. I was pregnant. Um, my daughter's father and I were not together anymore. We were high school sweethearts. Um, and I needed a job. So I was um, working full-time selling shoes at Nordstrom's and going to school. And I was looking for a job um, you know, I did that before, while I was pregnant, and once I had my daughter, I was looking for a job that was related to neuroscience. And I found a position working in an ERP lab where they wanted someone who had experience with kids, with infants. And so I, um, the the supervisor of that lab, Debbie Mills, she works in Bangor now, um, she, or she works in Wales. Um, she still remembers me because it had some, you know, internet infrastructure where you applied and everything like that but I sort of stalked her and found her and like put a note on her door about why she should hire me and that I have lots of experience with infants I have my own (laughs) like I have a 24-hour experience with infants and um, she hired me and I started out being what I call the lab clown Um, So my job was to, I think this job is the hardest job in neuroscience because you have to put a electro cap on a baby and then keep them from pulling it off, keep them from being upset and keep them from being too happy because all like laughing, dancing, crying, all of those things are bad for data. So once you get them capped, you do a puppet show or something where you kind of get them still and looking forward while you play just boring stimuli for them. Uh, and in along that process, I just became really captivated by how different the infants at all different stages were. We were studying sort of cognitive development and in all different domains. And um, I learned during that time, number one, that there were remarkable differences in infants at the same age. And I think probably more formatively, I brought 
I would bring my daughter into the lab. She was about one, one and a half when I started working in the lab. And she was really chill, so she was easy to practice on. <laughs> would work for goldfish. Um, so I brought her in to do all kinds of pilot stuff. Just everybody liked working with her because she had an easy temperament. And I found out that she was reverse lateralized. So I found out that her language was on the right hemisphere of her brain. And I found that out before I even realized that she was left-handed. So I got really interested in figuring out how differences in, in um, people's brains, fu- people's brain function drove differences in how they speak and eventually just more broadly in how they understand the world. So that was the kind of real formative experience, I think, working in that lab. Wow, wow, that's such a great story. Okay, so I want to, there's a few points that I want to go back and, and unpack. So I think maybe the first thing that really stands out to me is, 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 is really sort of amazing in that is that clearly from this young age, you were this hyper-driven, ambitious, pretty classic pre-med, uh, um, you know, on, on that track. And then you got passionate about something and you, in a sense, you kind of got derailed from that fast track to success. So I'm wondering what, uh, what was that decision like uh, for you? And, and why do you think you were able, because right, you know, there's this balance between sticking it out through the hard times when you're not sure, but then also executing when you do have that insight, it's like, oh, I need to do something different. So how did that play out for you? And how do you think that that's sort of uh, manifested for you later on in your career? That's such a good question. I think um, it really, you know, it's very funny because the the moment that this woman was talking about Phineas Gage is really like something that I feel like um, you said derailed, and that's exactly right. It just hijacked all of my interest and curiosity. And while I would say um, I was, a, I would. I don't know if driven is the right word um, for me before that moment. I think I was smart and I got a lot of reinforcement in the world for being smart. I was also pretty lazy. Like I remember very, very succinctly having a high school English teacher telling me I relied too much on talent, which I think he was wrong. (laughs) I did pretty well. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but I remember that. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, working hard, getting straight A's. I didn't have straight A's, not even in college. Um, but I was just on that. This is what I'm a smart person. I have feedback from the world that I'm a smart person. This is what smart people do without thinking about what I wanted to do. And I, I run into students like that all the time. Like when they're deciding whether or not to do the honors program, I, I, I have them write me an essay about why, and I'm looking for things like meaning seeking and purpose seeking because, you know, that it's absolutely different. So me, you know, me before, I think it's very salient that before and after that derailing, I also had a lot of life experiences that that statistically speaking should have pushed me out of the of the running, right? Like so I went this, from being yeah. not only was I like fully supported smart kid, you know, there's a lot of other things like my mom got a chronic illness and so, you know, when I got it wasn't that my parents cut me off or anything, but when I got pregnant, I also went to fully supporting myself, being a single parent. And, you know, those things just pushed me to want to be the best best version of myself. But that moment where I became, where I understood that there's an organ in our body that makes us us was just like, I need, I need to under, I need to know. And I think in science that 
desire to understand is really what makes a person who winds up in doing research and doing it independently and doing it in academia, I think that is the sort of defining feature. And everything else, honestly, it's like, I mean, one thing I will say is that I have only had one child and she had a really chill temperament, like absolutely not like her mom. And my interactions with other people's children tell me and and science tell me it's not that I was like a fantastic super parent, but that there was a great dynamic there. Um, But really, when you are tasked with being a single parent, you already have to do a lot of time management and prioritizing and things like that. So I think, you know, having the motivation of both absolutely wanting to understand how brains work and wanting to understand why Jasmine was weird and why I was weird in our different ways um, just made it, I would say, almost easy. I mean, it certainly wasn't easy. but I still think I would do this for free if I won the lottery. So when you got derailed, what, was it clear exactly what you needed to do? Or was there, were there sort of you know, several different paths you could have taken and you chose one of them? How did that play out for you? Mm. It was not clear. Oh, I guess I could add this little thing. I'm a first-generation college student, so I think that makes a big difference. Uh, Both my husband and I, neither of our parents went to college, which is nice. We bond over this because I think we're pretty the same and different from most of our peers in that. Um, So no, I had no idea what I needed to do or what what were the paths to setting the brain. I had a really awesome um, professor at UC San Diego, John Polich, and I, t- I wasn't in the honors program. I took some of his classes that were honors classes. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, look, like you're obviously you know, very smart and you're very interested in this. Like, what are you gonna do with your life? And like, how are you gonna do this? And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> what does one do? And so you know, he talked to me about, gra- he, vol- he sort of reached out to me and he's like, here's grad school. He was one of the people who, um, he studied um, electrophysiology at the Salk Institute. He might still. Um, and, you know, he was one who said, you know, if you want to study brains for the sake of brains, you're going to work with zebrafish and you're going to go into neuroscience. And if you want to study people, you know, you might be better off in the Department of Psychology. I will say that I'm uh, part of the neuroscience program at UW and they are trying to have more and more human neuroscience. And we have we're starting a center for human neuroscience. Um, but I still think that the sort of canonical difference is that human brains wind up in psychology departments and how brains work wind up in neuroscience departments. So I had that those kind of path building, but really there's so many, you know, I think it's, I find it really hard when I talk to these brilliant students who want to figure out how I got where I'm going, because it, I don't want to demotivate them by telling them how much kind of randomness there is in the system. But I had several different path choices and you know like for instance when i applied to graduate school you know where i applied and who i wound up going to work with and a lot of them boiled down to relationships and being in places where i felt supported and being in places where i felt um like i was going to be successful more so than like some objective criteria that i could check on the page and i think i guess throughout um There are these people like John Polich, like Debbie Mills, like my graduate advisor, uh, Deborah Long, who just reach out to you and support you and give you that guidance. And and so, you know, now where I when I'm at where I'm at, I realize that 
mentoring graduate students is not really about like, you know, training an employee that's going to go do a bunch of work for you. It's really about having a large influence on a small group of people and where, where their paths take them. That's really incredible that you had that level of mentorship and that one person was able to make such a difference at such a, an important time. And you know, you mentioned randomness. Uh, I think that's something that uh, so many of us can relate to. And I'm kind of curious, is there like, is there one moment of magical randomness that in retrospect it was like, that was like, that's just insane. And without that, you know, who knows what I would have ended up. Is it, does anything stick out as, as, as something like that? Yeah, um, I would say, so after, after I graduated, I was at, um, after I got my PhD, I was at UC Davis. Um, my daughter was about nine years old and she was really well ingrained in the community and, you know, Girl Scouts and all that and, you know, successful human being. And I was kind of looking, I was teaching, I spent the year in, after grad school teaching full-time at uh, Davis, Sac State, and I was applying for local jobs, like community college. I just thought like, I need to, I want to stay here and keep this kind of foundation supported. And through one of the listservs, um, you know, I don't know, you get on these listservs of the graduate student or something. I saw this ad that said, individual differences in mental function and dysfunction as a postdoc position at Carnegie Mellon. And the, you know, went in the process of writing my dissertation, um, I found the work of Marcel Just, and I was like, oh, this guy thinks just like me. I thought I had invented all of these ideas. Like, here's a really smart person who thinks like me. And I, you know, talked about his work a lot in my dissertation. And he was one of the PIs on the grant, Brian McWinney, who worked with Liz Bates, who I worked under at UC San Diego, was one of the PIs on this grant. And literally the, the application looked like it was written for me. I, it really did. I mean, it was so bizarre. And, and at that time, individual differences was not popular. Now it is, but at that time it was like very um, unique. And I thought, um, what the hell? I mean, I did not think I would be competitive for the position. You know, it's Carnegie Mellon, all these super famous scientists. But I thought, like, I have to try because this is exactly what I care about. And um, that moment, I would say, is was, like, very, very random and important. And then the moment, I think this is less random, but no less important, you know, I sat across the table with my nine-year-old and said, like, I got this job and it's in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Neither one of us have ever been there and we don't know anyone. What do you think about this? And she was just like, mom, if it's your dream, like, let's do it. And I think that either one of those things, you know, gives me the goosebumps right now. She's a good kid. But um either one of those things having been different and I would be TA, I would be teaching at a junior college right now or something like that. And that's crazy. I do want to talk about uh, how having an unexpected pregnancy made things more difficult, but I would first like to know about, is there any, any aspect of that experience that, that made you sharper actually made uh, you have sort of a, uh, you know, an edge, you know, I'm thinking of, I read in, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg autobiography that she yeah. said having a kid during law school made her 
have to be an order of magnitude more focused than everyone else because she just had more shit to do. And yeah. uh, so she had to be on top of her game in a way that her peers who were still sort of in the, in the throes of adolescence didn't have. And, you know, one thing that uh, I'd like to suggest based off that last story is that it sounds like you had a, a best friend uh, attached to your to hip in a sense. Uh, not only you could experiment on, but would support you in, in your, uh, you know, whatever you, you needed to go do. So I'm interested, what, what, how, did, how, did, how did that work out? Man, I'm so glad you brought up uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg because I watched the uh, what the Notorious RBG is that the documentary, yeah. and the thing that really stuck out for me was she was talking about like her time at Harvard and exactly when she was talking about her daughter, she didn't say she said like I had this secret weapon or this like great benefit like the way she mentioned it was that it was a a plus and that's absolutely how I feel and I just like resonated with that so much. Um, the guy who I probably had the most in common with in graduate school was in the army doing grad school as an ROTC. And it was really, I think, um, both the thing that it make the fact that it makes you hyper-focused and that it gives you a perspective. So Jasmine was for, I worked um, full-time in the lab uh, doing ERPs, wound up being the lab manager after graduating um, for a few years before going to grad school. So Jasmine was four when I started graduate school. And it wasn't the case that I could be like, I need to put everything on hold and get my PhD and I did five years <laughs> for that reason. Um, uh, and I'll be back to you when you're nine, okay? You know, it's like you can't do that. And it also focuses you to to remember this is a job, and you're and you're getting trained. And my passion sort of still let me believe that I couldn't. Be I mean, the fact that there's no one in um, my family who even has a college degree. I mean, I could not believe that they were paying me to learn and to TA and things like that. But I, you know, I had to keep it really focused. And when I talked to my graduate advisor on the phone, my um, interview, uh, she said, what am I gonna tell people about your grades? And because my grades were basically, I would say my GREs were like 99th percentile and my grades were like, I wanna say like a 3.0 or a 3.5, like whatever the minimum to get into graduate school was, I had that, if you included all my accelerated pre-med classes. And I told her, you know, because I, I maybe there was something in my letter about being a single mom. It was important to me that whoever admitted me understood that this was my life. And if that was seen as a negative, I was like, well, it's not going to work. And I said, you know, since my grades don't um, aren't indicative of what I can do. Since having my child, you can see that my grades are all like, you know, high threes and fours. And, you know, I took graduate classes. I challenged myself. But the truth is that sort of if I didn't have a child, I think in a lot of ways I could have equally uh, wound up as a bartender in Club Med or something like it really sort of focused me to be the best version of myself so I could be something that she would be proud of and so that she would have opportunities. Um, but that sort of idea of having a best friend is completely true. I mean, we grew up together and, you know, she just got her master's degree in environmental toxicology and she's going to Washington DC to do a public a science communication, public policy fellowship, and she's trying to save the planet. So I feel like, um, we absolutely did it together. And I think I, I, I truly see her as 
something that was a benefit to me, a motivating factor, like you said, made me be hyper-focused, but also gave me a lot of perspective. Like I need to play, I need to, you know, connect with my kid and I need to study, but those things are like bubbles. Like I can't do, I can't like let this endeavor take over my everyday functioning. Yeah, that's amazing. I really love that. Uh, I think that's that's incredibly special. Uh, and I, but I do. I am interested though. Uh, sort of that moment where uh, you know you first found out you were pregnant. Did you think about quitting? Were you like, oh shit, I have to go do something else. I need to. Uh, what? So what was the what was the initial sort of reaction, and then your process and kind of overcoming that initial emotional inclination in perhaps a more rational thought out way. Yeah. I, I never thought about quitting. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, there's a huge benefit to being naive. I was so naive. I mean, there's no way my 19 year old brain could wrap its mind around how much work it is either to be in grad school or to be a mom. And, um, and there were a lot of reasons, you know, that I, there were a lot of things I considered like my relationship with my daughter's father, but really it was like, oh, you know, my, my, my friendships, like I'm not going to be able to drink, (laughs) you know, I'm never going to date again, which was not the case. Um, you know, it was like really much more basic 19 year old things that like, oh, I'm not going to be able to drink alcohol for a year and a half or something, you know, that, that I was thinking about at the time, but the quitting thing. So I had, um, I had my daughter on campus on the hospital on campus at UCSD. Um, she, she was born on a college campus, which I think is really cool. And I had her the week before finals on winter in winter. And I took my finals. Um, and it was just like, you, I don't know. I, I think in a way that it's that moment that you, I don't know if it's because I'm stubborn. That's very possible. But in a way, I think it's that when you consider failing or you consider a plan B, you let a lot of energy and options into that. And I just never did. I literally never thought about failing or quitting or not that quitting is failing, you know, pivoting because I had already decided this was the thing that I really wanted. And it's funny because my stepdad, um, who's kind of this gruff, not always very expressive man. I remember him saying like, you have this burning desire to succeed. And again, like you mentioned me as driven, doesn't really feel like that. It just sort of felt like, no, this is, I think stubborn is just a better description. It's like, oh, this is hard, but things are hard in a lot of different ways. And we're going to keep going. And I think that, you know, Jasmine was really easy. And like I said, I think it was more of a driving force. Like when there is like a tiny helpless person there that needs you to put food on the table. And when you're fortunate enough to be able to do that while pursuing something you love, you just do it. But again, I think that, you know, it's, it's certainly not that I'm some hero. I'm very lucky. I had support. I mean, my mom, my mom was married when she had me, but she and my dad got divorced when I was really little. So she was a single mom. She worked her way up to like an executive position at a company making six figures and so forth, but like clawed her way up there through the warehouses. And, you know, she was like, I really worked hard to make your life easier than mine was. But she, but when I said, I'm having this baby and I'm doing this, she showed up 
you know? And so it's like, certainly I understand, um, that that is not always the case and that no woman is an island and that the fact that I had these mentors who like took the time to pull me aside and say, what are you going to do with your life? And who supported me. Um, and you know, a mom who was supportive and sort of, Hey, this, yeah, this is hard. Yeah. I was a single mom too. Yeah. You know, spend quality time, not quantity time. And, um, I think that was really, really important. I think it's really incredible that, so that moment where you change tracks was so quick. It happened in the blink of a, of a, of a railroad tamping iron going through someone's uh, forehead uh, and and yet that moment of of greatest struggle when perhaps uh, at least from an outside perspective it seemed like that's the you know a potential breaking point that same inclination was was not there and I think that speaks so much to who you are as a person and your love of what you do uh, and just you know one of the I just think a, a generally beautiful human quality overall and uh, I'm wondering so not everyone. Uh, I think has the same sort of disposition towards that. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if you had a student come to you, one of your advisees or something like that, that was struggling with some of those things, maybe you want to call it uh, around like clarity uh, of, of, of vision, purpose, that sort of stuff. Is there any advice that you'd give to them uh, along along those sort of lines? Yeah, that's that's really true. I think what I try and encourage people to do is to pay attention to what feels good. Um, and I think that the theme, you know, that pivot for me was really about understanding the difference between sort of what the world tells you is success. For me at that, you know, early period, it's like, I'm going to be a doctor because a doctor is the most respected or, you know, it's a smart thing to do. And there's so many, there's so much messaging about what the world tells you is success and what you find successful. And so like my example for that is in Seattle, we have a lot of students who wind up going into industry and working at Google and you know Microsoft and things like that. And there's different levels of messaging. Is that failing? Is that a pivot? Is that a cop out? You couldn't do this. And at first, like, you know, because I was so passionate about science, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is the only, you know, it took me a while. I mean, even some of my cousins are welders and they make more money than I ever did until I got tenure, you know? So it's like, it took me a while to realize that there are really different paths to success. And, um, and that the key is defining what success is to you and defining that in a multi-dimensional way and paying attention as you go along to the path to things that make you feel successful. So now, I mean, I just graduated my first three students who were so different from one another and who took really different paths. And it's very clear to me that you can, you know, looking back across their time, that you can see what were the things they gravitated to. Did they like to do like methods classes? Did those, did they like having a clear answer, you know, having a tool, something that feels good to them? having brief chunks? Do they like having organization structure? Do they like being lost in the weeds and just figuring out what you don't know? Um, you know, there are just so many different things that you can do with science that I think um, the challenge, I, I think that the key to being successful is uh, is knowing what's the difference between 
your definition of success and what kinds of definitions might be in the water or you might think are in the water and might have inherited and decided like this is the only way to be smart or to be a scientist or something like that. Absolutely. You know, I think the, the like sort of what you're saying about following your feelings and your gut is so important because so much of, of what we're able to understand about these sort of like higher level concepts of, of meaning and purpose, what we do, it really only makes sense in retrospect often. And oftentimes the only thing you really have in the moment that's going to give you an approximation of, of, of what you're going to think later about that is the way that you feel right now. And that, that can often, you know, sort of get washed out in everything that you're talking about, like the, uh, uh, you know, what the world expects from you, the checklist, and, uh, you know, what you expect out of yourself and, and, and all these things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think so, you know, just to give like concrete examples, I got accepted to most of the graduate programs I applied to, and I wound up going to want to UC Davis, even though some of the neuroscientists that I wanted to work with had had left because I really loved my advisor, I felt supported by her, and I was close to home. I was like within an hour and a half of both sets of my parents, and I like, this sets me up for success. And I'm so glad because I learned the rigor of behavioral uh, cognitive science, um, which is was really foundational to my career in the end. And then I made an exact opposite decision. I literally packed my kid, my cats, and a frog, which I, put in a Tupperware and snuck under my seat, a pet frog, um, to the middle of nowhere because I was called where I knew not a soul because I was just like incredibly kind of driven, like called to that research program. And that both of those decisions were perfect for me. If I didn't have those two things together, I wouldn't be who I am. And they were like, a, you know, sort of polar opposites in terms of the value or the drive, but they were exactly the same in terms of this feels like what I need. This feels right to me. So yeah, it's just like you said, in, in retrospect, it's like, oh, this was a plan. You know, this all makes perfect sense. But in the moment, it's just trusting yourself and being brave. I think it's really scary. Um, I think moving my kid to Pittsburgh was really scary, but it worked. I mean, it was very formative for both of us and I think you you kind of just it requires paying attention to yourself and and some kind of bravery and trust yeah that's amazing um so there's there's a ton of stuff that I would love to I could I could seriously sit here all day and uh, pepper you with questions we haven't even gotten into you the actual like content of, of what you're interested in your research and all that sort of stuff um uh, which I, I have a lot of stuff that I'd like to, to probe you with about. Um, and uh, hopefully we can circle back and, and do this again uh, when your when your book uh, gets released. Um, I would love that. And uh, so, but I want to be respectful of your time here. We're coming up the end. And so maybe uh, I can give you, you know, I have one question here that's sort of more related to your, your core interests. Well, at least, you know, tangentially. Uh, creatively related to your uh, core interest, and that's do you do you have a take on audiobooks versus actual reading? Hmm. Yeah. In in terms of like how they're good for your brain, or in terms of, 
or just like what's the compa- what are, what are the differences between the two? Well, whatever you think might be interesting on that, because I I'm someone who who does both, and I know lots of people they you know sort of they go back and forth on on what they like to do and that sort of stuff. And so I'm wondering if you have anything that you've thought about in that realm that you uh, have implemented in your own life or you think makes sense from a, a neuroscience perspective. Yeah, what a great question. Um, first, I think they're both good for you. Um, <laughs> you know, they're sort of like, okay, so from a brain and language perspective, there's this entry level, which is decoding, right? So if you're reading a book, you've got to go from this complex visual pattern to the word. And from there, all of the meanings of the meaning of the word and that word in context and so forth and so on is the same process as when you decode it from an audiobook. Now you get more information, you know, in the audiobook you're re- decoding it through your ear. Um, it's much more natural, of course. You don't have to learn to listen the same way you learn to read, but all of the sort of grammar building and elaborating and enjoying and learning all the literate literacy or language processes that come after that are the same, you get prosody and you get a lot more cues from a good audiobook um, in terms of like, oh, is this uh, something they mean literally? Or are they being ironic? You know, so your brain ha- definitely has to work harder um, in certain ways for print. But for example, um, people who are not native English speakers or who have a hard time uh, hearing have more difficulty comprehending through audiobooks. So like oh, really? my husband's, yeah, my husband's um, knows more words in English than I do, but English is his third language. And he doesn't like to listen to audiobooks because he finds it really hard, right? That you can slow him down or speed him up, but the pacing there is set for you. Um, whereas when you're reading a book, there's a lot, it's a lot clearer in terms of the kind of parsing of the information on the page and you set the pace for yourself. Yeah. So I think listening to books is great for your brain. Reading books is great for your brain. Um, that it's that really that first level of decoding the information that's different between the two. I think, um, in audiobooks, I think really the, uh, reader sometimes makes it or breaks it um totally. whereas you don't have that in the um in the printed book um and and i think that the you know because i study individual differences i don't know do you know anyone who listens i know somebody who listens to like um science books on like 1.5 but i don't know do people like do you have the sense that people tend to use the pacing Oh, there's definitely a faction of people who do that. And I think there are different different theories about that. And, you know, I think there's there's all sorts of ways that people try and get around doing the actual, uh, you know, brunt of, of the reading and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, because I would say, you know, being someone who studies individual differences, one advantage, I would say, to a printed book is that um, you good readers slow down at particular points where they want to sort of take everything in, make connections, or it's ambiguous. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And so there's some kind of active process in reading a book where you can control the pace um, from word to word, from page to page, and so forth and so on. Whereas certainly like people might be listening to audiobooks on fast or slow, but they don't have control of the pace. Like you know, wait, like, let me stop after this sentence and really like sort of reflect on what that means. Totally. One thing that I think is really important, like to me, the biggest thing 
and the difference uh, from a from a sort of cognitive point of view is that audiobooks are something that happen to you, uh, whereas reading is a much more, if you are not doing it, if you're not staring at the words and trying to process them, it's not going to go on without you. Yes. Um, and I think that sort of, that passivity of the audiobook is A, what makes it so versatile, right? Because you can do it while you're walking, you can do it while you're commuting, and you can't really read successfully while you're doing those two things. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also what, uh, you know, sort of, I think those are very different kinds of processing. And you, I think you touched on it uh, in a much more sophisticated way. And well, I think that... in both cases, this is something I've always been interested in. So we just got a paper published, uh, or it just got a, I guess it's about to get accepted, where we were looking at sort of EEG during reading and looking for instances of mind wandering. So I think Ooh. in both conditions, you can, you know, have this even, I mean, it, it feels like you, it, it doesn't happen, but it does even when you're reading, um, where you start to kind of think about something else and your eyes are still, especially when you're reading like textbooks and stuff, you know, your eyes are still moving across the page, but your brain is somewhere else, even if you're thinking about what you're reading or not, and you're just like, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, I have no idea what I just read. And it tends to be easier to like, kind of go back and figure out where you left off. But I always thought, you know, this kind of mind mind wandering technology that we're just reporting on would be awesome if you could have, you know, something in a headset that's l listening to your brainwaves and it could say, even if you were reading on like your Kindle, which I don't own because I really like to curl a book. Um, but if you were, you could say like, oh, I just, that's where you were last paying attention, right? So even in when you're listening to an audiobook, it's much more, uh, to me, as you were saying, it's much more passive and you can hear the blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, I, I have no idea what the last five minutes minutes were. Well, I think it happens in both mediums and that it's kind of, it would be cool to figure out, have a brain marker of where you were last actually taking that information in and processing it. Well, let's have that, let's let that be a taster for uh, <laughs> what we can, you know, sort of go into next time because there's so much fascinating stuff that I want to talk to you about. And even, I mean, we only were, you know, just sort of touched on so uh, some of the really interesting parts of, of, of your story, and I'd love to revisit another time. Um, but to everyone who's listening to this, uh, hopefully this encourages uh, everyone to buy your forthcoming book in January 2021 in both audio and visual <laughs> format. Uh, so just to cover all your bases. But Chantel, thank you so much for uh, coming on here. And this was uh, a joy for me, and I know uh, lots of other people will find your story uh, really interesting, and I'll and I'll do my best to to get it out to as many people as possible. And uh, I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank you for uh, for your idea. I think it's really important, and I'm glad for any kind of advice I can help for people in the process of figuring out what they want to be today, tomorrow, and in the future. So. Well, that's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Cognitive Revolution, and I will see you again next week.